So hi, hi Richard, hi Mary Lou. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks for agreeing to sit down and have a conversation uh, with me. Um, as part of Everything This Changes, uh, which is a parallel digital program that we're working on um, at the Belkins. And uh, when we first started talking about uh, reaching out to artists uh, to get their impressions of the current situation, you guys were uh, amongst the first people I thought of right off the bat um, based on your work in performance and your interests in uh, the performance of labor and um, the economics of life and life put to work, as you put it. Um, and then also more recently, your work around interspecies entanglement and communication. Uh, so uh, yeah, I just simply wanted to reach out and find out um, how things are going there uh, in your practice and um, in your plans and um, if the current situation uh, if and how maybe the current situation is uh, impacting how you think about your recent work and uh, the work that you're planning to make. Okay well thank you uh, Lorna for inviting us. Um, I think that um, initially, I mean, I think it's changed over time. Um, I think initially, um, as we saw that uh, exhibitions and other events were um, in limbo, um, either being postponed or uh, outright canceled, uh, we decided to just continue uh, with our plans to produce certain works. But um, we also felt at the same time that like our mode, it, it, it kind of affected our motivation. Um, uh, we were trying to uh, produce things, but um, we would often get distracted. Mary Lou was uh, uh, often in the garden, um, and um, I was often distracted by my usual distractions. <laughs> but uh, but then it kind of it kind of felt funny that as we started speaking to other people we realized that, uh, that we were not the only ones, that uh, other people were also experiencing the same kinds of um, ambivalence and uh, motivational uh, issues. And um, that had an effect of, um, I think, uh, just relaxing us. Like it, it, um, it, it released a lot of anxiety knowing that we were not the only ones, that like, everybody's in the same uh, boat. And um, it made me realize something about, um, this uh, drive or need to perform uh, either as an artist or in other areas of, of life that it's um, on the one hand it is uh, driven from the inside to basically achieve as much as you can uh, but it's also a, a competitive uh, drive that um, if uh, if other people agree to slow down then you could agree to to, to slow down and uh, and uh, not feel so funny about it that it's um, that it's, it's really a relational uh, thing um, as opposed to uh, a private uh, thing. And um, yeah, and now, now we kind of got the gear uh, back um, going and um, we started producing, producing again for, uh, for an upcoming show that uh, is scheduled to, to happen in, uh, in September. And uh, I don't know, maybe you want to talk about how it's affected the actual work that we do? 
that uh, for me there were two phases and uh, what Richard described in the first phase was this kind of lack of motivation and that usually doesn't happen to me too much. I tend to be really action driven and uh, I rarely feel like I don't know what to do. And I think for me, it was a problem of not being able to imagine the future. That, mm -hmm. uh, you know, normally you make plans and you create a certain idea of what the future will be like. You know that it won't be exactly what you think it will be, but you're able to rely on some kind of like relative certainty. And uh, being in, the, especially in the first weeks, kind of, not being able to imagine when things would get back to normal, what the new normal would be, uh, that really impacted me. And um, I think now that we're further in, uh, I've definitely had time to adjust, but I, it was a strong impact. And uh, the other thing that came out of this um, was that when we started working on ideas again, we, I, I actually felt that for maybe the first time in a long time, I really had time. I really had time to think through projects and to actually experiment and uh, also question why I wasn't satisfied with certain things. And I realized that this actually almost never happens, that uh, we really, uh, in the past maybe 10 years that we've been working together, we really haven't had that luxury of time for um, for so many years, and that was really really nice. And in looking at uh, taking that time, was it and this idea of future um, anticipating or thinking about how to respond to this different notion of future? Did it? Has it made you think about your more recent work uh, in a different way or? It made me think of uh, our past work, uh, in particular, uh, all the works we did around uh, statistical thinking yeah. and uh, the history of statistics and data collection. And obviously these forms are really uh, important now in structuring our imaginary as to how, especially with the epidemics or the pandemic, we're trying to imagine the future based on these models of the spread of a virus that we're being constantly uh, fed and that we're looking at to also orient our behavior on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. Mm -hmm. And this brought back all this, this work that we did researching the emergence of statistical thinking in the Western uh, tradition going back to like the plague in the 16th and 17th century when uh, actually data about mortality, the place of death and the cause of that started to be collected. These data were at the kind of at the source or one of the foundation of the relationship between the state and the government of bodies, like what you would obviously call like biopower. And they led to the beginning of like this imagination of this thing called the population. And then uh, from this number of people imagined 
approximate number of people, not precise, uh, states could determine how many people would be taxed and how many men could be drafted for war. And so it's tying our moment, our present moment, to a whole history of state governance of life through numbers. And again, uh, through a, an epidemic, these numbers become uh, a tool for directing behaviors. Can I add something to that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I had a conversation about um, two or three weeks ago with um, somebody I used to work for uh, in my previous life when I was uh, working as a um, uh, in a consulting company for in uh, in applied economics, and uh, this was my boss, uh, the the president of the firm, who um, I always whenever I, he's a, a a brilliant person, but um, very his mind and his logic is very much anchored in and uh, in that of an economist and uh, we were discussing the uh, pandemic and he was going over some uh, some of his thoughts about what was happening and um, uh, one of the things he said uh, was that um, um, the state should um, uh, and this was in response to the fact that a lot of people who had uh, non-urgent uh, care needs uh, were being asked to stay at home. So a lot of the surgery that was not life-threatening uh, was being postponed and, and things like that. And so he said that uh, this was really a bad thing because um, uh, instead of just saying that everybody who has uh, a COVID-related uh, problem should be admitted to the hospital, leaving everybody else aside, he said that uh, there should be a, a, more, um, uh, a more thoughtful process whereby um, you should be considering life expectancy. And this like rang a bell, like a, an alarm bell in my head. And, and, uh, and his point was that a lot of the people who were dying from COVID were older people. Whereas a lot of people who were then not getting healthcare might've been younger people. And that by directing more of the resources towards the younger people and letting the older people die, life expectancy would still remain high or maybe even be higher. And it really drove home this, like, I've always been very suspicious about statistics and uh, the focus that we, um, that we grant certain uh, measurements, cer certain indicators. And for me, this was like something that should be an ethical uh, issue uh, in terms of how to direct limited resources to a population. For him, became a quasi-objective issue of uh, trying to increase an indicator and what mechanisms or what processes or methods can we put in place to increase that indicator? Not thinking about all the other factors that are involved, which are ethical, which really um, are determined by who we, who we want to be as a society and how we want to uh, make decisions and, and, and allocate resources for him. It was just a question of like bumping this indicator by 0.2 or 0.3 and um, and that uh, really reinforced a lot of the critical work we've done in the past yeah. uh, with respect to economics, but also statistical measurements. And, and, and this um, phrase that I read uh, a while back by Isabel Stengers, uh, where she says that um, she, she mentions the power, the power given to abstractions that make us stupid. And uh, how by just focusing on these measurements, whether they're life expectancy or GDP or or even your own personal bank account and, and, and ignoring all the other factors that relate to quality of life and, 
and values uh, just get, just get put to the side. So that was something that really uh, was a, an awakening uh, discussion that I had with my ex boss. <laughs> yeah, that's in my cohort. The on the older end of the demographics, I know the conversation has been. Yeah, I'm not volunteering for that. No, <laughs> I'm not volunteering to impact <laughs> that. And um, uh, but it's really fascinating because certainly we are thinking of ourselves in uh, like our actions, our actions as citizens, as having this statistical impact, right? So that that we are volunteering in a certain way to be data, you know, and to manipulate these, this, the idea of flatten the curve, which has been uh, uh, very prominent here in BC. The, um, the buy-in of people to kind of follow the public health um, uh, requirements has, uh, has really been along those lines of uh, we are, we're acting together statistically or uh, through behavior to impact the outcome of this abstraction, which is, uh, is really, really fascinating. Uh, and then also how it has, uh, the situation has revealed, like in so many other countries, but definitely in Canada, the weakest uh, parts of the social infrastructure, and that is actually um, extended care and senior care homes, you yeah. know. Yeah, I was thinking too about, um, in the context of your work, uh, the just basically subjectively, because all of those weeks of it being extraordinarily quiet in the city, where you can actually hear birdsong. And so I had to laugh at the, uh, the work that you have done that is about interpreting bird calls because <laughs> I find myself uh, in this completely unschooled way constructing in my head the conversations of all those birds at 5.30 in the morning <laughs> that start to sing outside the window. Um, and you've done a number of, of works um, uh, engaging with uh, bird population and gathering population statistics about of birds and then with the um the work that i just mentioned um a, a kind of a projection of our notion of meaning onto the song the songs of birds maybe you could talk a little bit about the that cluster of projects Maybe I would start just by uh, responding to what you said about the curve, because uh, yeah. this kind of motto or injunction to get together in solidarity and to try to flatten the curve has been very strong here as well in Quebec. And it started with the WHO who really brought this image at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I was struck every day to see how the image, the, the visualization of a representation of data could be used to create solidarity between people. That it could be like this one slogan that everybody would be like, 
united together uh, behind this image mm -hmm. and this will to affect the slope of a curve. Um, that was fascinating for me that uh, first that they would think that this would be a good mediatic situ uh, suggestion mm -hmm. and that it would actually work, that people responded to the threat of the virus and the desire for our security by really embracing this kind of, in Quebec for sure, this new authoritarian uh, language of the state and the figure of the prime minister as a strong leader that was going to protect the citizens. And there is the um, national director of public health in Quebec mm -hmm. who's called Dr. Uh, Horacio Arruda. And he would make with the prime minister daily uh, statements on television that you would hear on radio as well. And people would listen to these religiously, like mm -hmm. with devotion and with passion, feeling that the state had their lives uh, at heart and would take care of them. And they would accept in return for this protection, uh, sacrifice at the level of individual liberties that were really unconceivable before and they would accept them gladly uh, to feel protected. And all this behind this image of this abstraction of a prediction of potential cases over time. Uh, so I, I really felt that this was something that we should talk about because of our shared interest in these forms and the power that these forms have over our imagination and structuring a collective life. Maybe I would, let Richard talk about the other part of the question. Oh, the birds. <laughs> um, um, uh, yeah, I think our, our interest in birds, I think, uh, uh, just happened based on where we live. Uh, we live in the countryside on a farm. And um, for many years, we saw birds, you know, arriving in the spring and, and nesting, but not really paying too much attention to what species they were and uh, and uh, or how you know how how they would nest or anything like that, and then we started putting out feeders in the winter time, and uh, especially Mary Lou started building and uh, uh, populating our territory with bird uh, houses, and then we started really paying attention to uh, to which birds arrived and um, and uh, which were nesting, which were returning, and the the different uh, behavior that they that they had. Um, and then uh, a couple of years back, uh, we did a project called Anthology of Performance Pieces for uh, Animals, which focused on uh, scientific experiments made in the laboratory by a variety of different scientists to measure the cognitive abilities of animals and uh, the history of that, um, of that, uh, that, that research. And, um, and, and based on that, we, we started just becoming more in tune uh, or attuned to um, the communicative abilities of uh, of animals and um, and so while we were watching and observing these birds we were often thinking about like the complexity of their songs and, and what they could possibly be saying to one another uh, we started reading things that like chickadees um, actually have a kind of syntax that uh, they, uh, they they actually formulate sentences and and that the the complexity and what is being communicated by bird songs is so much more complex than what we've all been often given them, given them credit for. That, uh, that, but 
and, and that's just, but that, that was just a marginal part of the research. Like a, a great big chunk of the research basically states that uh, it's the males that sing and males either, you know, either sing to claim territory or to claim, uh, you know, geographic territory or to claim the, the territory over a female. And so we started laughing about the idea that, uh, that a bird song would basically amount to two varieties. One is, she's mine, she's mine, fuck off, she's mine. <laughs> or, you know, this is mine, this is mine. And, and, um, and so basically that started a whole um, critical look at how bird songs have been interpreted over time uh, from biblical times to the present uh, and in a variety of different cultures. And we decided to present them uh, sequentially, one after the other, identifying the bird and then listening to the song and then giving uh, a type of interpretation. But what was interesting for us was to flatten, like non, to give non, no hierarchy or no priority to either one of the interpretations. So it could be a, yeah. a very contemporary scientific uh, interpretation uh, that basically doesn't try to get into meaning, but that just tries to identify patterns and syntax amongst different species over different geographic locations. It could be um, a different, um, uh, what do you call it? The, the uh, Solomon, uh, those are the... Uh, yeah, but uh, what he asked Solomon, Solomon were... were Riddles, yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, it could be uh, just that uh, the, the, the bird was interpreted, like the hopeful uh, bird uh, was interpreted as, uh, as, uh, as uh, giving, um, posing uh, riddles to King Solomon. Mm. Um, in any case, all I'm saying, or, or it could be Tweety Bird, um, you know, and, and basically presenting one after the other in a very uh, non, um, non-hierarchical manner, uh, giving equal equivalence to all of them. I, I'm explaining this really poorly, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's basically what that, uh, that uh, piece was trying to do. Yeah, yeah it's really, I found it really fascinating to kind of jump from discourse to discourse that there's like about talking about the nightingale and, and then you just think about that, um, the, the way that particular species hold a kind of symbolic meaning in a number of cultures, like Persian culture, Western culture, and, and, then, um, and then Tweety Bird as this like cipher or kind of stand in for um, like a, a guilelessness or a kind of innocence. Um, yeah, it was really lovely. Um, but some of the other work with birds was around the uh, attempts to um, to map or uh, some of the other video works that you've done, like to map or to count or to um, um, develop ideas around those populations, etc. Is that right? Actually, yeah. We, we did a lot of research and uh, one area that we happened to find interesting was uh, the involvement of humans in caring for other beings. Yeah. And so we looked at uh, interspecies care, uh, 
between humans and birds in different situations. And uh, we met people, uh, mostly scientists, but also activists and uh, regular citizens who were involved in very practical activities where they would engage physically in a form of care. But uh, we tried to find situation where care would not be perceived as innocent, as so simple and just being the person who cares is just such a great human being that actually trying to learn a little bit from uh, all the thinking that feminists did around care and the problems of care and the fact that giving care or receiving care is not that easy. Mm -hmm. And uh, trying to find situation where we would have complex dynamics between birds and humans. So we went to uh, film with some of the um, exhibition keepers at the Omaha Zoo. Mm -hmm. uh, one person in particular who would spend hours and hours cleaning one exhibit for puffins and mirrors with a tool that was like as big as a toothbrush and on his knees and hands and just cleaning and cleaning this space for the birds to be able to uh, exist in this very uh, confined unnatural and uh, complex space of exhibition and then we uh, traveled to Ontario and we met uh, some biologists and conservationists who were involved with uh, the uh, breeding the reproduction in captivity and the release of one particular songbird which is uh, extinct in Quebec and uh, threatened by extinction in Ontario, that's called the loggerhead shrike. Mm. And so we followed them for uh, two days, seeing how physically they were involved with these little birds that they were going to release on this one site, and all the manipulations that they had to do to check the weight of the birds, see if they were healthy, uh, take samples of DNA before they release them, to be able to understand uh, the conditions of the birds, but also try to figure out what is happening to this population while, while they're, uh, why they're disappearing. Mm -hmm. so. And so this uh, ethics or the, this idea of, of care for other species, um, is this kind of coming out of a theoretical research base or what, uh, what kinds of reading were you doing that informed that work? I think it comes really uh, from where we live. Mm. Uh, so we live on in this area that's mostly farmland mm -hmm. and uh, our the land on which we live is uh, being farmed, it's organic farming but uh, as Richard was saying before there are a lot of birds here and uh, as we started to know them and learn about them, uh, I realized that their population is in sharp decline. It's, uh, it's one of the population of birds now that are really uh, plummeting. Like these birds and uh, birds that live on the, the sea that are more like sea bound. Mm -hmm. And looking at what was affecting them uh, kind of led us to want to work on issues of cohabitation. Mm -hmm. and hospitality and how we live with other species mm -hmm. uh, but I it came from a, a very direct realization that uh, I mean even here the way that the agriculture is done the rhythm of uh, organic farming for um, what do you call it for? Uh, hey. hey 
the, is too fast for the birds to actually be able to build a nest and reproduce and the chicks to be uh, big enough to be able to flee when they're cutting the hay. Mm -hmm. So we've had this problem of like temporalities here that don't work for the birds. Mm -hmm. And yeah, trying to, once you start thinking about one species, then you have to think about other species and uh, you realize how complex it is to actually measure and understand the impact of what you do. Mm -hmm. so very practical. Uh, of course, then there's much reading that comes and kind of feeds into this. Generally, um, in almost all situations, uh, whenever, our, whenever we um, start getting interested in a subject, the interest is usually related to what's happening around us. And it starts from a, a genuine curiosity where you feel like something's, something's wrong or something is amiss. Mm -hmm. um, and then we kind of work intuitively, uh, but at the same time, that's when the research starts happening. And um, um, the research will then sort of feed into um, our, our thinking more practically. Um, but um, the research almost always comes a little bit too late, I think, in our practice that we start off in, in a direction based on just interest. And uh, by the time we finish the work, that's when we're, I think, ready to start it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a really familiar problem to me as well. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I just sort of have to accept that um, none of those projects ever really end. That is just like this, this next threshold of, of thinking. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I was thinking about, I was listening uh, to an epidemiologist on the radio the other day talking about how, uh, just to switch gears here, but to thinking about the virus itself and its learning process and how it is learning through, you know, about us with, with um, every new state of its evolution, um, it is gathering data about uh, its imperative requires that it learns in order to survive. And so um, thinking about that was really a remarkable shift um, in my thinking in terms of uh, these, the relationships, the interrelatedness of all life and the, um, the um, fact that this, this tiny, it's just essentially a bit of RNA surrounded by fat that has completely shut down capitalist production. <laughs> is, is, you know, I mean, it's such a, a remarkable state of affairs um, and revealing also what a fiction all of these systems are also the fiction that it, that change is slow it takes time for things to change um, that political processes are are also exceedingly slow uh, but when you know granted we're extremely privileged in this country but for this country to be able to uh, the big word I guess these days is pivot 
and um, distribute uh, cash to people, you know, after, you know, in two or three days, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, remarkably hopeful in a lot of ways. Does that strike you at all? Yeah, I think that um, when you talk about like, uh, I think uh, fictions, um, one of them is, that, that struck me, the fact that uh, the government all of a sudden is able to uh, distribute so much money uh, and uh, where before it didn't have it, uh, but when it needs it, all of a sudden it could produce it. And uh, so the, I think the, it's kind of points to me to a the fiction about the money supply that like uh, the, the theory is that the economic theory is that if the government prints money, uh, what prevents it is that it'll cause inflation because there'll be so much money uh, that the, um, the supply will go up. <laughs> and so therefore the prices will, of everything will, will go up as well. But then uh, when, you know, in the time of crisis, all of a sudden they could print it. And, and why didn't it have money to give to all of these groups that needed it before the crisis? You know, there's that fiction. The other fiction, which I'm really um, uh, amazed at is the stock market, that immediately after the beginning of the crisis, stocks just crashed. And, um, and it lost something like 20 or 30% within like a week or two weeks. But that since then, the stock market has basically gone back to where it was before the crisis, and it's even going beyond it in certain, uh, in certain areas. And at the same time, you read about record unemployment, you read about bankruptcies, you read about like now rioting. You, you, it's like all the news is so catastrophic, but somehow the stock market is, some, is immune to it. And uh, so the fiction, the other fiction is that uh, the stock market supposedly reflects the health the economic health of companies um, is completely erroneous. That uh, you just get the feeling that there are certain people with enormous amounts of capital that are able to manipulate it almost at will, yeah. despite what's really going on. Yeah. And um, yeah, I find that really amazing. Um, mm -hmm. so those are two fictions that, like, I've been struck with uh, since the beginning of this crisis. Yeah, I heard this um, this analogy that. Um, the way that people have thought about it, it was the uh, the economy is a person walking to the bank and they and their dog is walking alongside them and the dog keeps running back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and the <laughs> that's the stock market and the and the economy is the person just so now those have completely changed roles <laughs> so the economy is like is going like this and and the stock market is just like moving steadily ahead and so it is yeah it just really reflects that there's such remarkable wealth and resources that are still in reserve to able to be deployed according to the agenda of those that holding those resources so yet yeah, it feels hopeful in the sense that um, uh, that that idea of change in policy that the idea of um, of also the hopefulness I think around uh, people using uh, coming together in solidarity um, and rethinking, you know, this back to this idea that you're talking about in terms of time, uh, pe people really rethinking what time means to them that 
that there's a certain level of hope there as well. Well, thanks very much. I could go on all day. We could spend the whole day talking, which would be fun. But it would be fun, uh, yeah. yeah, it would be fun. <laughs> and and uh, congratulations on the new book coming out soon. Oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, it, it looks really amazing. And uh, uh, unless you have some closing ideas. I think this last idea of hopefulness and uh, that what we've experienced together is going to have a lasting effect. I think that's really important. And uh, like flattening the curve, it's, uh, you need to project into the future, knowing that what you do now, what you build now will shape the future that we will have. And uh, I think the spirit, that's one of the things that we experience collectively is like our capacity to shape what will come mm -hmm. and in major ways and to experience it concretely in our lives and our action and our interaction with each other. And so I think that's uh, very precious, but we have to do something with it. That's fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lorna. Thanks, Lorna.